Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Like now that I'm a game designer that has some better understanding on what I do and how to do it, I knew I could do it better. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Draw Your Dice podcast. Today's guest is kind of a big one for me. I'm not going to lie. I'm slightly intimidated by you. They are the designer behind the World Champ Game Company. They are the co-host of the Brain Trust podcast. They have a Kickstarter coming very soon, which we will talk about a little bit later in the podcast. I'd like to welcome to the show Adam Vass. Hello. Thank you. Adam, it's a pleasure having you on the show today. You're sort of the one of the three parts of inspiration for why I started this podcast in the first place, so this is awesome for me. But for the people at home who may not know you, would you please give a slight introduction as you present yourself to the world for anyone that uh, may not be aware of who you are? Sure. My name is Adam Vass. I'm a tabletop game designer currently living in Southern California. I've published and designed role-playing games as World Champ Game Co. for about four or five years now, including Cobwebs, which was a conspiracy horror board game, role-playing game hybrid. Most recently, Necronautilus, my science fantasy role-playing game, which was sort of, which was my most successful game so far. So I think a lot of people might just know me from that now. And I'm also one half of the founding members of The Brain Trust, which was a podcast and game design Kickstarter and also now community on Discord. 
and a beautiful community at that. Adam, the additional thing I like to do is sort of my icebreaker method for the show is to also find out what sort of your first touch points as becoming a game designer or, you know, what was the first sort of maybe role-playing game you played that got you into the hobby or slash discipline and what was the game or idea that sort of sparked you into doing game design? I had moved from Boston where I had lived for about five years back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I'd lived for a longer time in 2015. And at that time, I had just moved back to a place that I had left for five or six years. And that's a very jarring experience for those who are who have not had to like leave and come back to a place. Because, you know, you have this degree of familiarity from living in a place for a few years, but being gone for some time, like things change when you're not there, whether that be sort of the atmosphere of like the stores and the and the restaurants and that sort of thing, but also just the people that you knew who also left or never left and just went on with their lives and things are just very different than than you left them. And when I did that, I had to sort of re-figure out where my community was and, and who my people were. And in doing that, I ended up spending a lot of time at the comic book shop downtown, which is called the Vault of Midnight. And with that time spent became friends with a lot of the staff and regulars there and they also were a board game retailer so from spending time there and becoming friends with them I ended up playing quite a lot of games with them and being introduced to a lot of these sort of like new wave of tabletop indie game stuff mostly strategy stuff and then eventually working into role-playing so my first role-playing experience was actually playing D&D 3.5 at an event that the comic shop threw. So, and I, I played D and D for some time and a lot of people that's obviously their gateway, but it was never fantasy was never really my thing. So I very quickly pivoted out of that and into further indie stuff, playing a lot of apocalypse world stuff and, and diving really quickly into like indie and small press gaming. And then with that very shortly after designing my own stuff first is like setting hacks for, for other games, like trying to do Fantasy Age, the Green Ronin publishing RPG system in like the 1920s alt history. And then very quick, like my, my first role-playing game was that I published was Babes in the Wood, which we'll talk about later. But then I also made this solitaire letter-writing game called All We Love, We Leave Behind. And I think about that now as being one of my introductions to role-playing design, and it's pretty wild to have gone that different that quickly from the fantasy role-playing traditional experience into writing something like extremely insular and uh, different, less trad. Mm. And I th- that's really amazing because for, mm, for, I think for most of the people I've had on the show, what I'm really inspired by for a lot of, the designers is that while maybe D and D was sort of the first touch point for a, a good amount of the people I've interviewed so far, it's interesting to hear someone because usually they you know they design a class or a subclass, or they homebrew homebrew their own rules for D and D or something like that. It's really interesting to hear that you took almost that immediate pivot of that coming from sort of not really being interested in a hard hard fantasy setting and 
trying to create something that felt more like what you wanted to play right out the gate, which is very cool and very admirable as far as as far as I'm concerned. And I think that also having this environment that had you probe the indie slash small press space almost immediately is also really cool. So yeah, I, I think that whole experience is is something very wonderful. Thank you yeah. for sharing all of that. Let's let's dive into the meat of today. We're going to talk about that successful Kickstarter you were just speaking about, Necronautilus, and kind of unpacking that game through its design process. So my first kind of question, as always with these things, is what was sort of the sparking element that said, I'm going to start making this game? What was sort of the first idea you had that propelled you into this uh, path? It's funny because I think I have an answer for every game I've ever published except for Necronautilus. Because Perfect. I don't I don't necessarily know where it came from or what it what sparked it. I actually had planned and prepped two other Kickstarters in the spring of 2020 that I just didn't launch for other games, one of which was called 3-Day Weekend and I just published it on my own. With, without fundraising, and then the other was called Protest Singer, and that was a, a redux of a game I'd designed a few years ago, and I just I canned it and, and haven't worked on it very much since. So I had this impetus to make a project. This is also coming off of the heels of my conspiracy horror game Cobwebs, which kickstarted last year in February, and so it was, it was shipping in around May, but you know, quarantine started in March and my other life, I'm a touring musician, so I did not have work anymore. And so it became clear that I needed to have a game that, I guess, make make releases more conscious to provide some stability uh, in my life, whether it be creatively or financially. So these sort of like one-off projects that I often do, and I still do, they were fun to like scratch the itch of, of making something and releasing something, but they weren't, I, I wasn't making any money doing that. And I wasn't necessarily growing my audience doing that either. So at some point in the summer, I guess I just had this idea to do Necronautilus as this sort of like planet hop. You know what it, I think a lot of it was, I had this affinity for No Man's Sky, the, the video game of, mm-hmm. but wanting to make good on the promises that that game felt like it came came short by which was you know this infinite galaxy of procedural planets but there was no real interactivity to it and i was for those who followed along with that game at all it changed so much and they keep updating it and they keep making it better and and like making it the thing that they they wanted to make at the start which I think is really inspiring. But basically, having this affinity for this gaming experience, especially at the time I was playing on PS4 with a projector TV, so just playing with like a 12-foot-wide projection of space and really feeling like I'm in it, being somewhat profound, but then having an experience that I thought was novel, the the exploration aspect of the game, but it felt really boring really quickly in terms of you as the player don't really do very much and you don't interact with other players because the galaxy is so big, you'll just never run into anyone. So 
I take these things I like about this video game. I take this aesthetic that I've always really liked of of stoner metal and, and sludgy, droney kind of music aesthetic, which also I think was having a moment because the success of Morkborg, which I think is definitely opened up my eyes to leaning into your your niche things, your your tendencies and your aesthetics and your freak flag, like just doing the thing that you want to do because people will respond to that. So combining those elements and then also having this sort of examination that was almost taking place in real time on the Brain Trust podcast of of like modern OSR books like Ultraviolet Grasslands and Electric Bastion Land and stuff that was steeped in this traditional role playing, but doing really creative and innovative stuff with how the players interact with their space. I just ended up with this cauldron pot of putting all those inspirations together and making my own project that ends up being a, a really, it was a really different experience for me, but also ends up somehow resonating with a wider audience and being that thing that I was hoping for. That's, that's amazing. First of all, the biggest thing that I really love about the kind of nuggets or group of nugget ideas for Necronautis is that you found a game that had a surreal experience for you that you really enjoyed, but you found that mechanically it was a little bit lackluster. So you found a way that maybe not made a second video game, but transposed it into this other medium, which is really eye-catching, especially when you talk about how you're, you know, having sort of the percolated influence of Morkborg bring you into a space where you really said, I'm going to make something that really comes from within my inner mind space, my mind palace space and create this. If no one has seen the graphics or or art direction of Necronautilus, it is a beautiful book that is just seeping with character in of itself. I mean, on a couple of episodes, I talk about how some of the games that I've read elicit play as I'm reading them, especially when we consider things like the words mechanics and things that we'll talk about in a little bit. But I think that as far as nailing sort of, what I want to say, visual design slash really honing in on a theme. This book nails it in in spades or five stars or whatever <laughs> analog I, I could think of that would would say great job for this. So that's really, really awesome. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have a background in visual design and graphic design stuff. Oh. And that's always been this privilege of mine in game publishing and game design is that I can start with graphics or I can have I can have graphics day one that really inform tone and themes of the game. And that becomes like a cycle rather than a lot of writers who have to hire an artist. So the game design is taking place in this like Google doc vacuum and art comes generally after the fact, after the design, right? Being one of the rare lucky few who can handle both and do both. Sometimes I'll just have a visual that I start with and that I design around the visual component or vice versa. So that's, that's the thing that was extremely important to Necronautilus. And I think that's what makes it really special, but that's the thing that I think makes a lot of my work special is 
is the visual presence of the thing, whether it be the physical medium or the text or the graphics or, or whatever, just however it looks is what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an interesting design method, maybe not said out loud, but I think there's this interesting connection or influencing that can happen when you're, when you have the ability or maybe the foresight to design your visual presence of the game alongside its mechanics. Cause I think that it allows you, cause interesting that you talk about how it's a, a design cycle for you that you can sort of already have an image and that can sort of reverberate and resonate between both mechanics and excuse me, visual direction. So being able to do those things at the same time and kind of bat off one another, like a game of pong or, or table tennis or whatever have you that, is exponentially more powerful, I think. At least in my opinion, hearing about it, I think it, it can really benefit a game to be able to land on that theme and tone, on that visual direction, start to create mechanics or systems or settings or pros alongside of all of that, which is which is really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm obviously lucky to have honed those skills for a long time before I ever started poking at games. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it's it's all well-deserved. Let's talk about some of the initial stuff. So I, I've been through the book uh, a bit, and I love that, first of all, in the first couple sections of the book, while defining, you know, that the the book is, the, the universe in which you're playing in is dangerous, weird, infinite, yours. Well, actually, before all of that, because you are the designer, would you give a, a brief intro of what Necronautilus is about? Because you'll do a much better job than than I will. Sure. Necronautilus is an infinite universe planet crawler. So you, over the course of the game, you're traveling from planet to planet and interacting with the things that live there, all under the guise that you are an agent of the ruler of this universe, who is the blind god, Death. So Death tasks you with, with missions, and you go do the missions, and then you report back. You're sort of removed from yourself in your service to the agency. You don't have memories. You don't have a physical body anymore. You're these shape-shifting clouds of gas with a soul inside. And through play, you manipulate your powers through language and also in doing so, sort of reveal more memories that you have like locked within your soul to sort of actualize your sense of self over a longer over a longer course of play. So you have this kind of duality of short-term power fantasy role-playing with long-term emotional story building. For what little I know about the themes and genre of metal. This is the, I mean, I, I would say this lands in the same, like this is fucking metal as opposed <laughs> to like Mork Borg as well. Like everything that you're describing right now, I'm like, I, I have two horns up at the sky, like right now. <laughs> it's so good. There's so many sub genres and sub classifications of metal too, which I mm -hmm. started during the campaign and after the fact, specifically referring to it as stoner metal inspired because Obviously, while death is a major aspect of the game and the setting, 
death metal is tonally quite different than what I'm going for and what I achieve with this. So, and then I think with Morkborg too, they, they refer to it as a doom, doom metal of a role-playing game. And that comes off too, because again, it, it has a lot of these tonal parallels with that style of music, but theirs is missing some of this psychedelia that I lean into quite a bit further. So we're, we, we clearly share a lot of influences and I was very emboldened by their production, truthfully, of, of seeing how a book and a role-playing game can exist in that space to then take a stab at mine. But even the types of bands within that field that we both were inspired by were quite different and the end results being, being, you know, further apart than they are close together because of that distinction. Absolutely. I definitely, in fact, even before you sort of talked about, I was like thinking about like, it's sort of this trippy metal, like just in my mind bouncing that around. And I, I totally agree with you that I think that there are general themes that, both games sort of share and then there are these they hit these subgenres of totally different design that you know i i would say if i me uh, a casual of gaming i guess is what i would say that if i were to put morkborg and necronalis next to each other i'm like oh yeah i can see the comparisons of themes and then as i read them like these are two completely different games like there's no way that these are uh I, w- I would never say that Necronautilus is like Morkborg, I guess is what I'm trying to put out in the sure. universe. I would, yeah. ne- I would never say that those are the, you know, if you like Morkborg, you'll like Necronautilus. Like, I think they're s- distinct enough that it's hard to say that. So I think that's that's really amazing that, that you pulled that off for sure. I, I guess pulled off means like you were lucky and that's not what I'm <laughs> trying to get across here. You definitely had very intentional design to separate yourself within that play space. Right. I love the first kind of things I really liked about reading through the book is sort of this explicit and intentional designer speaking to the players of the game wording in like the safety tool section, using cats, using lines and veils, the open door policy, which is really cool. The Olivia Hill policy you also have in there. I love that you included them, but for the folks at home, why did you choose to include those things in your game? I think there's... Beyond the fact that this is a game that I think was, well, the Kickstarter sort of proved it it reached outside of my core audience quite a bit. So this was a lot of people's first introduction to one an Adam Vass game. So that was a thing I had in my head. This was also understanding that this game would appeal to people who come from metal, come from traditional role-playing game stuff, and maybe they are less familiar with story game structure or with some of the considerations that modern indie games take in those ways, which isn't to say that they don't, they don't play mindfully. It's just that maybe they've, you know, maybe they play in a way that works for them, but they're not aware of these sort of modular facets that you can add to the game that make it just more explicitly safe instead of, just trusting yourself to be okay. And lastly, because the game focuses so much on what a word means to you, like that's really the core mechanic is how do you interpret the language that you use and how do you use that language to then do the things that you need to do because of the, the 
weight that I'm putting on the language used in the game. I needed to make it clear right off the bat that particular language was not welcome in that play space. I I love it, and I think that there's really something to learn about being very explicit, especially in a game where, and we'll definitely dive into, the because it's the core mechanic that runs through basically the whole game, but in a game that uses, as, as you put it, language so thoroughly throughout its systems, I, I think there's really something to learn about explicitly telling people how not to abuse this style of game, and that... It creates a space where I think it gives people the permission to recognize when something bad or I don't know if I want to use the word bad, but when something uncomfortable is happening at the table, they can outwardly address it. I think when you leave, when you don't put these sorts of safety tools or explicit directions of misuse in your game for some games it can lead to very gray areas of like what is what is not good what is good and what is every you know i think what's nice about it is that it creates an environment for people to openly discuss like hey i i don't like what you're doing we need to either cut that out talk about it or something or or we're not we're not doing this anymore sort of thing and i love that open permission that happens in the very beginning of the book which is which is great phenomenal I think, too, there was a consideration at the time that it, with the hopefulness that quarantine would end and, and conventions would be coming back, that this is a game that would be played at convention tables versus a lot of a lot of my games, which don't take that into consideration. And convention play is just different because you don't know the people that you're going to play with versus like your home group, which you can you can have a silent understanding with, or you probably already just have um, that sort of understanding because they're your friends and you don't necessarily need to confront those things in play. This was one, a consideration I don't often make that this game might be played between strangers because this game might be more popular than some of my other things. And so with that, as the designer and publisher, I have that responsibility to foster that community aspect, even if the game itself, like there's not necessarily relationships between players so much, or player characters rather. So I needed to make space for that in the book to say like, hey, you're all people playing this, whether you're, whether you know one another or not. I I think those are very excellent design principles for sure. Thank you for including those in your book and thank you for talking about those. Let's get to the words, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle (laughs) of the game, the words. So in this game as playing the death agents, you use words in a, in a multifaceted set of ways. Was this sort of a design goal you had when the idea started to take some, take some shape in your mind or on paper or was this something that came later through design? Like, were there some versions of the game that didn't use words at all or, or anything like that? No, th- this was the first thing. Like, this was the first mechanic I had. And it's inspired by uh, a game called The White Hack, which is like an old school, an OSR game of fantasy stuff. And it there's it's really streamlined. It's, it's one of my favorite OSR games in that way that it approaches a lot of complex choices 
and really streamlines it for you as the player to then just make two or three choices and be off to the races, which another that was another thing of, about Necronautilus is I didn't want players to get bogged down in, in setup and character creation. So realistically, if you know three words, you can start playing. But in the White Hack, the spell casting system is very loose in that way of you, you get single word spells and you interpret them when you need to cast them. And I that was always a favorite aspect of that game to me is like, unfortunately, in a lot of fantasy games, the spellcasters are, are very weak. But the ability of you as a player, and this is a thing I'll, I'll probably talk about a lot, you as a player understanding the spell's name, this word that you wrote down on your character sheet, like fire, for example, like you can use it to start a fire. In theory, why you could use it to extinguish a fire, fire as in like a gun, maybe like you have a magic arcane gun and you fire it or whatever, just like any instance of that word is covered by your ability to use it in the game. And it just is reliant on you as the player to come up with those creative solutions. So, and that comes with this OSR philosophy that I never really got or understood in story games. And then later had this profound appreciation for that. It's about your skills as a player and not inherently your skills as a character. So you're not rolling to see if you can interpret this word. You as a player are understanding the language that you're using deliberately. And with that, you get the creativity of of extracting meaning from something that maybe doesn't inherently have it or assigning meaning to it. And I think that really leans into these themes of subjectivity and language that are in, in play in the game of what does this mean to you right now? And, and having this like Rorschach test of letters and words in front of you and watching them change over the course of the game as you add and remove letters from them. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a game that I'm filling around with that, I, that I've kind of lost my path on, and I'm glad that you mentioned kind of what White Hack is about, where it wanted to use words for sort of a spell casting slash action system or or anything like that but i love i think one of the things you you touched on about having the player understand what's happening with their character before dice are rolled or before you are given the permission to interpret the actions inside of the fiction i think is is really i think it's a really good what do I want to say? When I compare it to something like using a fireball in D&D 5e or something to that effect, and think about how you say, I'm going to use fireball, but you don't know exactly how much damage it's going to do. I think about descriptions of when everyone makes their deck save and like, oh, the fireball was small, or they were all able to get out of the way or something like that. And I think in my imagination, when I use fireball, it's a giant meteor of flame, right? Like it's supposed to be devastating when it hits this area, regardless if they get hit or not. And I like that you kind of set up interpretation first and then how does then how does the fiction react off of whatever your interpretation of, of that word was. So I think that's a very powerful tool, especially inside of a more narratively focused 
system slash slash games. So that's that's very awesome. It really encourages like player creativity to an intense degree too. Of, mm-hmm. and I think on the flip side of you being this low level wizard with a single word spell in Necronautilus, the Death Agents basically have any power that they can come up with. You can imagine, and to some that's that's like overbearing option paralysis waiting to happen. So that's why you have the words to like focus that, but the words are your ability to liberally define and interpret those words opens that back up into a selection of choices. Like you, you don't have infinity anymore, but you don't just have three things you can do. You have as many as you can come up with. And I think that combined with just like the spirit of play it, so you have these powers that are effectively infinite, but the spirit of play is you can't just one shot your whole life, right? Like you, you're still doing these missions and the missions take time and effort and or you're fighting enemies and they take time. Even if your single action is like an extremely powerful action, That those are all things that are mitigated by the way that the numbers aspect of the mechanics work. So it is doing this really great job of encouraging creativity while simultaneously like not necessarily breaking the the way that you still play and interact with those mechanics and not only that it also allows for a stronger sort of open collaboration at the table right because you talk about how there's a potential for cognitive overload when it comes to how to best use a word in a situation, even with the ability to sort of be freeform creative. And someone at the table may have, may come to a different initial conclusion of what, you know, when you said that fire could represent an arcane gun, that was, that's nowhere, like, I've never thought that about that verb, right? (laughs) Like, I've never, I've never thought about it in verb form, right? I thought about it only in noun form. And when you said that, my mind immediately exploded to everything else that fire could be on in this game or any game that uses sort of a word bank basis for play. So I think that it's also a powerful form of, of allowing other players to kind of jump in like, oh, well, you could certainly throw a fireball if that's what you want to do. But remember, fire also mean or or consider that fi- fire also means this. Right. And I think that's really cool because it, it allows for a little bit more player teamwork cohesion to happen there as well, or it allows everyone the player buy in to feel like they can contribute to the table, even though someone else might be trying to do something. Totally. And that's sort of the, I mean, that's the big thing for the whole game is that a lot of the mechanics kind of roll off a combination of the words you have listed on your death agent sheet and also the values that are associated with them. So for your game, to my understanding, you use sort of this 2D6 system that is an under or exact system where under getting underneath the value of the word gives you a success. Rolling exactly that value gives you a form of a crit success in some cases, and then over the value is a failure. Was there? Did you find that that was just the best vehicle for this system, or did you play around with different style of dice mechanics slash card things or anything like that in previous versions? So this was. So I I really like and and generally prefer roll under systems because they make the math explicit to the player. So mm. if you have a 16 out of 20 on your strength and you need to roll under 16, that's intuitive. Whereas 
in Dungeons and Dragons, a 16 means you have a plus three, and then you roll that number and you add three. Like, it's just unnecessary because the math works out the same that if you have a 16 and you roll under it, you have a 16 out of 20 chance to succeed. Like, that's just explicit and that's not hidden. It's not secret Mm -hmm. math. And obviously a D100, if you if you have something like Call of Cthulhu, like that explicitly tells you the percentage of likelihood that you'll succeed at something. If you have a 65 out of 100, you have a 65% chance that you're going to do it on any given roll. So I, I like roll-unders for that transparency, but then I, I use this 2D6, which does not, which isn't as explicit in that way. This mechanic's actually taken from 6E by Bats. And then my introduction to 6E, which was actually 6E GMless by Vitatia Valetti, which really helped me understand the system a lot more than just saying, like, you have skills and go use them. Which is, side note, I, I asked Vitatia to consult on Necronautilus, and he wrote a section on playing without a game master that appears later in the game because I wanted it's this really nice full circle of he inspired me to use this 2d6 roll under system with his GMless game. Then I got to hire him to write a GMless section for my 2d6 roll under system game. Anyways, so 2d6 roll under you have, and, and there's, there's no modifiers, right? You don't, you're not 2d6 plus X. That's what I was just talking about. Roll unders. You don't need the math and stuff. So you always see this value of this number next to the word that you want to use. And to get a six, I think you have like a 40% chance, six or, or lower to get a 40% chance. So at the start of the game, you're probably going to fail more than you succeed, but failure leads to you evolving the words that you're using. So a f- fire is not a great example because a, an aspect of the game is using letters from words that are expended and you need generally longer words to, to use to do that function. So I'll just say like starfall is my example now. So if you try to do starfall to do like, I want an asteroid to come and attack this person on my behalf and you fail, you then add prefix or suffix or another word to make a phrase. And then your value goes up. So it becomes more specific. It's a little bit less utilitarian, but you increase the chances that next time you try it, you're going to succeed. Mm-hmm. So so this was an aspect of it that I really liked too, of starting off with the most broad things you can think of and, and like just words that you'd think you'll be able to interpret in a lot of different ways. But knowing that through failure, those words are going to change. They become more powerful, but they become more specific. So you kind of hone in what it is that your character can do or wants to do through failure. Then there's also this crit system of when you roll 2d6 and you match the value that you do the thing that you wanted to do and you do it to some extreme degree, but then the word itself fractures. So it's playing with this. There's this really rich wordplay in the system of you want to start off with a word that you can interpret, but if you have a lot of letters in that word, then when it fractures, you can make something more sustainable or, intuitive to you but then also knowing that if you fail you're going to have to add words to that and make it still something that you can understand and use so 
it really front loads the creativity in setup, which again should be pretty instant. But then over the course of you rolling the dice and trying actions and succeeding and failing, the language really quickly evolves and you end up with this bank of refined skills that you have as a as a character that really informs like how you're going to approach the rest of your mission. Mm. There in the book you use the just as an example of this just fracturing that you're talking about in the book you use the example of dangerous as being the the key word and then when it fractures you have the player you you suggest in the example that one of the words be rogue and then the other be sand and first of all i know that you're a genius designer and <laughs> when i read it i was like is that possible can you make those two words from that like uh when you talk about that word play i think it shows a level of not necessarily just system mastery because we're also talking about the english language or whatever language you happen to be playing using this game which i think there's also this really other interesting concept of seeing this game played in other languages and how those words operate together. I think that could be really cool because I, I watch a ton of anime and they do a bunch of kanji play in a lot of their jokes where one thing might mean another depending on the context of the sentence. So I think it'd be really interesting to see other variations of this system in other countries, which would be really, really cool. But I, I think... It's, it's like it's almost an educational game, too, to some extent. And when I'm talking about this fracturing is that when, when I didn't recognize, like, this, Dangerous doesn't have those letters. Oh, wait, <laughs> yes, yes, it has all of these letters. So you're absolutely correct. I just, I think that's that's very, very cool. And I, was that educational intent purposeful or did it just come out of the creation of, of the game? Yeah, it's purposeful in, insofar as I like spelling games, uh, like Scrabble or... The, or paperback, the like deck building spelling game. I like playing those. I like doing crosswords and stuff. Um, that letter play is interesting to me. So it was an it was an intentional aspect of my kind of fun to put into the game that I recognize is. I mean, there are a couple role playing games where spelling and and that kind of like letter play is a facet is a mechanic. But it's obviously not extremely common, and, and more often you have a lot of just number play. So it was just something that I was like, this is fun to me, and it'll be interesting to see what people do with that. Because it also mentions that like spelling doesn't have to be correct, or you know, if dangerous, fractured, and I, I made the word rouge, which, you know, French oh. word, like that's still mm-hmm. a word, and I kind of know it. <laughs> I took French in school, but... I didn't retain a whole lot, but the idea being a word is a word. If you, if you say it is kind of like to some Mm -hmm. extent you're playing Calvin ball with your mechanics. Yeah. In some of the portions of examples, you mentioned that because you take out letters during certain portions of the roles, depending on the results and in the different contexts of, of mechanics And you mentioned that spelling is not necessarily or yes, spelling slash grammar to some extent when you talk about the planet generation and creature generation stuff is not terribly necessary. So I imagine all of this sort of geek speak that can also come out of this game, which could be which is very cool to me as in that regard as well. 
Yeah, and on that note too, like the 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 language that you use. So in in planetary and creation structure, which is procedural, like a Mad Lib, it kind of goes back to what we were saying with fire too. Of like you assume this is a noun, but when it's a verb, like that interpretation changes. So it works really well in in the procedural generation aspect, but it similarly doesn't matter what type of word it is in your skill list because you can change it as circumstance offers you. Mm -hmm. And I also love that when you do have, so another portion of the death agent character sheet has the collection section in the left eye. If I'm the skull facing you (laughs) uh, right side, if you're looking at the paper and I love that that's also the word bank for the GM for both, adjusting the modules of your Nautilus ship and also for the planet creation. Like I love that it's, it's partially from or the GM's creation also comes from the things that the players have self-crafted in the game, which I always love mechanics that operate like that, where it's not the GM just sitting in a vacuum creating without any input from the players. I love that there's sort of this, okay, I have these resources that the players have provided me. Let's start creating some other avenues for, for play in the narrative or the fiction or whatever uh, word you would like to use there. So I just love how much words kind of ink through everything in the game. Yeah. It's, it's sort of designed as a feedback loop. Like mm-hmm. the GM will send you on a mission to this planet and you know, you destroy these, like pterodactyl creatures or whatever, and then you get the word. Uh, that was a bad example. I'm trying to think of a cool word. But say, you know, you fight these, like, phantoms or something, and then upon com- completing that battle, the GM awards you the word spectral. So you just throw it in your collection. And maybe you'll make that one of your words that you can use as a skill, or maybe not. So then when you go to the ship, you could use that as a module so maybe your weapons are spectral or then you know maybe you go to another planet and the gm asks you for words and you throw spectral out so that's a word that they gave you in this phantom battle now you're giving back to them they get to reinterpret when they are now establishing this new planet so these words get to go through these cycles of reuse but every time they force not force encourage reinterpretation and repurposing to Make them different each time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, there I mean this game slaps. That's the only way that I know how to put it in my own language. It absolutely slaps. I love every bit of what what I came across in here. So to talk about sort of, you you talked about, it, there's a, another Brain Trust member, Spencer Campbell, that you just had an interview with as of the recording of this episode, where you talk about sort of the memories component of the of the death agents so if anyone big shout out to spencer campbell if anyone wants a a deeper dive into the psychology of rpg please go check out his youtube channel but the one thing i found interesting that i i think i'd like to get a little bit more established is what was the concept behind the the life mechanic right where there's this dance between staying with staying between a middling ground of zero and 30 life i know that part of that is setting based but was there any sort of design philosophy for because every i see constant discourse around hit points and D or whatever have you and this is your interpretation of of vitality or life points or yeah. health points or whatever what was sort of the the why why this version i guess is what i'm what i'm so there's there's a few things at play here because at first like you said there is the abstraction of vitality and that's a a tough hurdle in traditional role-playing game design because a lot of the time, your HP does not equate anything to your skill or strength, anything like that. So you could have one health point left and still just have your regular stat block, which is not necessarily indicative of what it is like to have one twentieth of your vitality, right? Like whether that be mm-hmm. exhaustion or physical harm or whatever that leads you to that point. So again because these characters are amorphous and there's like soulbound clouds that was not necessarily a consideration in the physical way that they exist and so i didn't necessarily have to have that but obviously there needs to be repercussions for acting in ways that would induce harm if there was physical if there was physicality to these characters and obviously just to sort of control the scope of what you can and can't do. So basically struggling with the thematic idea of you're in the afterlife and your characters are already dead. So you can't necessarily die. So what happens when you are out of this resource that is your life? And that was a hurdle that I had to jump in design of, of 
not necessarily making it a punishment because it never just it just doesn't feel good as a player to have your character die and then you have to make a new one unless you're doing like a funnel or something where that's your buy-in that you're going to kill a bunch of characters and at the same time i don't want there to be nothing that happens so i had to figure out what happens with zero life and so then you have these like memories kind of like rush flashback you're incapacitated in the way that sort of uh, inspired by blades in the dark of like you're there but you're not there so you're you're present as a player but you're not necessarily affecting your circumstance because you're so messed up so that's at one end of the spectrum and then at the other i think it was important to me that there is an some kind of end goal whether you make it a deliberate choice to pursue that or it happens over the course of play the idea again so this game doesn't have levels or leveling up or advancing in that way but in a lot of trad games you you can like retire or you can have this like once you level up a certain number of times there is no more structure in the rules to con- consider that so i had that as well of like life is this resource effectively that you're hoarding in a way kind of like money in a trad game and there's nothing really that you're spending it on except for taking damage so what happens when you have enough of this resource that you are rich i guess like you have this high the ceiling amount of of a resource and because of the setting because it's the afterlife and because you're these agents that serve death and you're not necessarily supposed to pursue life it becomes this really cool tug of war of if i get too little of this i am incapable of doing the things that i want to do to interact with the space in the story and if i get too much of this then i am in trouble and that creates narrative things to do both both for the player who's now going to be in some way persecuted whether it's by the the other agents or death itself or or whatever or by the gm who recognizes that now you're doing something that is arguably illegal or at least frowned upon by the agency for whom you work so what punishments and penalties come with that so it was really this mechanical reflection of the abstraction of health in a game where you can't die because you're already dead and doing that having two ends of a spectrum both push narrative elements of the game instead of mechanical ones so either one can happen and you continue playing but they change the story that you're telling when those things happen Mm -hmm. i find that really fascinating because i don't think i've ever aside from this game that has some sort of narrative trigger or mechanical trigger, I guess it's sort of both, that happens when you are at your fullest vitality. A lot of the games that I've played, trad games as as we've been calling them so far, have sort of, as your maximum HP increases, it's just the further the number away is from zero, right? But I find it, as I'm making this Devil May Cry game and I think about the immortality of characters like Dante and Virgil and, and things like that. And how do you correlate in an, in a high octane action game? How do you correlate vitality and health to essentially immortal people? And I really like this dance that you have to keep 
of just this dance of being between the maximum and minimum of vitality and what does that represent in your setting. And I think it's a really interesting take on quote unquote hit points or whatever have you. Uh, the reason I say quote unquote is because I think your version is so far delineated from the common concept of, of hit points because of its narrative and mechanical weight that it's very, for me, it's very inspiring. I love, this is something that I would definitely like to see in, in more games, even on a traditional basis, per perhaps. Maybe there's some sort of, you know, if we're talking about an example in D&D, &D, if you're at, mat, you know, at your fullest life points, your stamina is full, like, why not get advantage so long as you're at maximum HP or at that 90% mark or whatever have you. I just find it interesting that there's also something for the top end of that meter as well. So that's re really, really, really cool. To to respond to that, like brainstorm to the idea of having a function to maximum vitality doesn't necessarily need to be mechanical either. If you say mm -hmm. my character is at max, you know, like 40 HP or something like a considerable value. They're, they're like radiant, right? Like they, uh, mm -hmm. they attract people's attention because they're just so like glowing or whatever. Then you mm -hmm. just have a narrative function to that. There's no addition. There's no changes to your dice, but in the universe that the fiction takes place, you can change the circumstance by being just more healthy or more powerful. Um, I totally agree with that. To some extent, too, and I talk a lot, we talk a lot on the Brain Trust podcast about the TV show Lost, and I'll mm -hmm. give a, a ping that this is a spoiler for the last season of Lost, but it's a show that I think people, <laughs> if you haven't watched it, you're probably not going to, and that's fine. <laughs> last season of Lost. People. So the last season of Lost kind of takes place in these parallel timelines where they did and did not succeed at their ability to change time and those timelines then converge at the end but there's one character um who is sort of aware of the divergence and the ability to converge who's then going around and trying to convince the others of that it's like i sort of they're sort of the chaperone to the afterlife in a way but it's very it's a sh people complain about the ending a lot and people there's a lot of interpretation to it but just for the sake of simplicity in this in this parallel they're a psychopomp who's delivering people from this kind of hazy limbo to a afterlife that they want and in doing so they show them their memories the things that happened in this other timeline that they maybe were that were obfuscated by this divergence Anyway, that's all a thing that I really want. So in my game, in, in Necronautilus, really the way that you achieve more life and gain life higher than what is sort of like your starting value is by engaging with your memories and realizing who you were before you were a death agent, whether that was in your living existence or in your afterlife before signing up for the agency. And engaging with those memories is what puts your life in into the upper echelons before the realization at, at 30, which is the maximum. So to some extent, maxing out on life is a deliberate choice as a player. I, I think it would be really difficult to accidentally get there. So mm -hmm. it is supportive of a different type of play in which you engage with 
your memories more deliberately and your words eventually become less powerful because your memories sort of overwrite the function that the words play. So it's this it, it's this toolkit that's provided for players to play in the way that they find most gratifying. And to me, that is, do you want to engage with backstory and feelings and that sort of stuff? Or do you want to engage with power and skill? And those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but they mm-hmm. you're rewarded for the type of play that you want to engage with either way. So you're not punished for ignoring one, but you can have very different experiences over like a short campaign by deciding to choose one or the other. I think, I think it's top notch. I, I just, and you know, as you sort of push, push back on the sort of concept that the, the top end or bottom end or whatever have you doesn't necessarily have to have a mechanical, but more a narrative push to it. Even that makes, I think that alone makes hit points, life, vitality, and and for your game, adding the two different spectrums, not mutually exclusive spectrums, but the two different uh, extremes of play, simply through this one mechanic alone, for the most part, uh, um, as attached to many other things that create different narratives, just, I think it sort of, for me, settles the hit point debate of that find the different avenues at which life is interesting in your setting, your fiction, your systems, or whatever have you. Uh, I, for me, that's a huge takeaway that is very inspiring and that I definitely, in all of my games, will probably really think about when, you know, depending on their concept, will consider. So thank you for opening my eyes to that. Gladly, yeah. So the the last little bit of unpacking for me that, that I'm interested for Necronautilus is sort of how you manipulate the clock system, which I think a, a decent amount of people are familiar with from Apocalypse World slash Blades in the Dark. And one of the things I found really attractive is how you manipulate the clock system uh, a little bit more for enemies. And in the text, you mentioned how the amount that is not filled up by the enemy as rep- as represented by their abstraction on the clock also gives you how dangerous they are in terms of harming your character. And I thought that was really cool. Was there some other, something else that inspired that shift in the mechanic? Just, I've never seen it used that way. So if it's in something else, it's just because of my ignorance. But was there a reason you wanted to, to do creatures in that manner? So, to some extent, my expectation was the, th- especially early on, that the things that you were fighting were were bestial and not necessarily people. They could like I mean, it, I struggled with this at the start of design of making a game that explores violence, but I don't want my players to be cops and I don't want them to necessarily do battle with just like citizens of like go to a planet and fuck up those people's lives and then move on which would be really easy like that is kind of what sci-fi exploration encourages inherently and having this pretense that my setting is the afterlife get puts a little bit of a band-aid on it insofar as they're going you you don't you're not killing them (laughs) necessarily so 
one push I had was to make the people that you interact with more evil than you were. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. warlords. There's a lot of like class war stuff in the setting where you just go and demolish some rich people who are exploiting the underlings of their of their planet. And that's and that's all good. Yeah. But so to, to go back to like the idea that you were going to be fighting like behemoth creatures and not necessarily people, it is again this abstraction of vitality. But going back to what I said of like when you're low, you don't have the strengths that you have when you're high. This was very seemed it seemed obvious to me that this is how an animal would work in that reflection of saying if if I have six segments on my clock and I'm this elephant and you haven't done anything to me, I can do the most harm to you. But if you've chipped away at it and it's at half health for for lack of a, another word, it's only doing half of its possible damage to you because it's not at full capacity. So, mm-hmm. and I don't know that this is in another game, but it probably is just because, you know, there's so many games and I, I read mm-hmm. as many as I can, but, and sometimes I'll absorb something and not remember its source or something like that. But this was a choice to reflect the sort of whittling down of your target and that targets dwindling ability to make things harder for you. But also framing it as a clock and not just a static number mm-hmm. presents it as an issue of time. Because again, well, not necessarily time, because getting hung up on setting stuff, you exist outside of time. But again, because the character skill scope is so wide, if you just have like, if you have the word headshot in your skill list and you're like i do a headshot well it's still mechanically the same like numerically as if you just went and hit it with a stick Mm -hmm. so doing a headshot is still going to only fill one segment of the clock it doesn't necessarily have inherent higher power than any other skill word so Mm -hmm. using clocks became this abstraction of battle insofar as instead of how many like instead of how much health it has it's it's going to take you this amount of effort to overcome this thing mm-hmm. 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 yeah i that i think that's exactly the word is is the the effort that it takes for taking down this monstrosity and also i love that it's this almost codification of exhaustion slash wounds slash whatever have you the the reason i wanted to get your insights on is because i think it's very uh, along with what we were talking about with vitality and life for the players i think it's almost the same sort of spectrum for the denizens of death's realm in terms of that you know if someone stabs you in the shoulder and you can't use your arm are you as effective as you were when they didn't stab you in the shoulder? Not necessarily, not fictionally. So, you know, in more traditional games, why doesn't that always impose disadvantage? And, you know, depending on the DM style, it absolutely does. But in some cases, it doesn't. And there's no, like, hard, fast rule about injuries in in some of those games. So I love that this clock system sort of represents both the amount of time, narratively, that it's taking and the amount of effort that it's taking to deal with this 
adversary, and it's also representing at the exact same time the adversary's maybe will to fight or ability to fight at the exact same time, which is very, very cool. And, and I think, again, it's one of those things that inspire me to think about how those concepts are represented in, in games that have that sort of combat aspect to them. So very cool stuff there. Thank you. So first lightning round of the whole whole shebang. Adam, this section kind of talks about things that you are viewing within your spheres of influence or maybe some of your curated pools of information, such as Twitter, the Brain Trust Pod, uh, Discord, or any of those other mediums for information gathering or, or demographic gathering. What are some trends that you're seeing in the tabletop RPG space that you are a fan of, or maybe some other trends that you are not a fan of, or maybe even some personal thoughts that you want to speak into the world that you would like to see trend more in in the space? Anything that you're viewing in those in those areas? Yeah, a thing that I see and like and will self-servingly encourage here is just creating content for games that exist i think there's a lot of interesting push for that among indie designers and i think a lot of first-time designers too or people maybe who don't even refer to themselves as game designers who can then create a class or a module adventure or whatever for um, another game like morkborg or or troika or something like that and i say self-serving because there is a pretty liberal license for this for Necronautilus because I want people to play with with my toys. I want people to explore spaces that I neglect in the core game or things that I hint at that I don't necessarily plan to further detail. I so so there's what what I'm calling stellar remnants, which are things that are inspired by Necronautilus or interact with the setting or mechanics in different ways that people can then make and distribute and sell and do whatever they want with. And I'm trying to also create more artwork within the style and and themes of the core book that then I can offer to people to make those products look more in line with the core game. So that art pack is available on my itch, which I'm sure will be linked and talked about later. But I like that that exists and it eases the burden, especially on younger and newer designers of having to create a massive piece of work because the piece of work has already been crafted in some way and you get to you get to add your your spin or your your own take on it and that's really exciting and also i think it's really encouraging for people who are interested in design and also interested in more obscure and and underground indie stuff versus something like the DMs Guild, which is ha- has its own problems, but it shows a lot of this creativity and affinity for design just, just kind of being pointed in a direction that is less appreciative than I think the indie space is. So you see it with, with stuff like Light by Spencer Campbell. Mark Boar is getting a lot of it. Troika's always had a lot of it. Just third-party content creation is being an exciting trend among the indie sphere. 
amazingly, I mean, I, as a new designer, call that generous by by any version of what I could think of, that, that you would be willing to create art for other people's use, which is very cool. And I know that when I first started dabbling in like homebrewing for D&D and things like that, I really abused the art packs that they had available for content creators on there just to make it feel more D&D-like. And I think it, I agree. I really like this trend of designers being more open with their games. We talked with Tyler Crumrine uh, a couple weeks ago about the systemification of different games and how people can really use that Creative Commons license. And that opens the door for so many other people who were on the fence about creating something, but didn't, you know, I'm constantly running into like the, I don't want to plagiarize anything. I want to be very careful about not plagiarizing it. And I even think the littlest thing will be caught in my very tiny game. Not like I'm doing it purposefully, but I mean accidentally plagiarizing, and then my whole concept gets blown out of the water or something like that. So I think these Creative Commons license and then especially these art pack provisions are really powerful for opening the doors to more and more people who want to create within this industry. So I think that that's a really brilliant trend to touch upon and also an outstretched thank you for doing that extra lifting for new people who don't know that they're designers yet. Yeah, that's a good way to put it because making those supplements and stuff is just as much design as, as we're doing. Adam, you have an exciting Kickstarter coming up. You are working on something. This is the future section. I've poked around at Babes in the Wood first edition, but I know that you're currently getting ready to launch a Kickstarter for Babes in the Wood second edition. Let's let's talk about those things. For as always with any of these episodes of the show, I always highly recommend that people get the games that we're talking about so you can follow along just because we don't you know we don't read the book page for page so it's you know for sometimes it's important for context but first of all I love that the game is based on over the garden wall it has this amazing nostalgia piece for me personally and I think the design of the book and the systems captures it one-to-one there's no doubt in my mind that I would feel like I could play an exact campaign of Over the Garden Wall successfully with, with this. But for the folks at home, why don't you give a brief introduction to Babes in the Wood 1, and then we'll talk about some of the things you're looking to potentially change, alter, uh, or add to the systems as we get ready for this Kickstarter. So Babes in the Wood is, like you said, a, a Over the Garden Wall tribute piece. It is powered by the Apocalypse, which means it uses the system from Apocalypse World or Monster Hearts or or Monster of the Week, these sort of um, touchstone games that a lot of indie gamers and even a lot of people who just sort of dip their toe into indie stuff are still familiar with. But it is a system by which you play as kids who are in this sort of ethereal forest wandering forever (laughs) in this in this strange place and interacting with the people and animals that live there until you sort of 
have some important realization that allows you to leave it. And all the while there is these, this sort of dark force that exists behind the trees and in the branches that's sort of following you around and manipulating the circumstance by which you explore. But because you're kids, there, there is like a quite a, a lot of engagement with the, the fear and the darkness aspect, but a lot of it is just sort of slapstick humor and wanting to help people and finding strangeness that doesn't ring strange to you because you're just more accepting generally kids it, so also obviously over the garden wall is the big touchstone here but i think adventure time or a lot of the like more modern cartoon network shows fill this role as well and then i also kind of re- recently realized that charlie and the chocolate factory kind of feels like this uh wizard of oz and alice in wonderland and those kind of like fairy tale style stories all kind of fall under this umbrella as well that's so funny that you that you add the i didn't even think again one of those things where i'm not thinking about it but totally makes sense especially adventure time i feel like you can there's a lot of latitude with sort of the art slash story direction of that mythos that fits really nicely into this game and i know in the in the back of the book you provide some example fairy tales but there's no reason that you couldn't maybe explore other portions of the kingdom of Ooh with this game which is very cool very very cool so for babes in the wood second edition what sort of being were there things that you were dissatisfied with with babes one were there things that you felt it were it was lacking what sort of prompted you to to alter this game into a new edition so the first edition is actually the first role-playing game that i published back in 2017 and because of that because of my limited understanding of everything or game design i guess it's not very unique i don't think it uses a lot of moves and structure that I are whole cloth lifted from Apocalypse World first edition and Dungeon World. And it's fine, it's serviceable, but it's just not to me it is not special. But every year I would get this surge of people who want to play it and care about it because it is like so rooted in like October. So, you know, every September through November, there's a spike and I have to reprint the zine. And at a certain point, I'm like, why am I reprinting this? Because it's not necessarily a work that I feel I put myself into. And I and I I wouldn't say I'm not proud of it, but it's definitely like now that I'm a game designer that has some better understanding on what I do and how to do it. I knew I could do it better. So Babe's. In the Woods second edition is a full rewrite, restructure every everything of the core themes and tenets that exist in the first game. So I I just like just deleted it all, <laughs> took this core conceit of here are the characters that you are and what you want to do, and just started designing a game with that in mind. So use the same title, use the same tropes, but it's it's a new game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the f- the first thing there's like a lot of things that are different and updated and changed about it but one that i specifically wanted to 
deal with as a designer and promote as part of the second edition is that there's no longer a system of combat because it doesn't really make sense that there ever was one and it's just one of those baggages from from these other games so there's no move to attack somebody there's no move for like honing your weapons and stuff there still exists defensive moves and like they're, they're just different. Like you're, you're trying to deter harm from coming to you and your friends, which is not inherently tied to you hurting something or someone trying to hurt you. Right. So this doing away with combat was my number one priority. And I have to say too, playing the first edition combat was fun and it was usually pretty funny because you're not necessarily like slashing swords at, at people you're like fighting a skeleton with a broomstick and like you can play xylophone on its ribs and like that's fun it's good (laughs) but i think it would be like we talked about with necronautilus i as a designer have to make these choices and support certain modes of play that i want to encourage a friendly atmosphere and achieve the tones that i want the game to do and that doesn't necessarily include fights so did away with combat, restructured how moves work to to basically better focus both the basic moves and each playbook's special moves. And then there's actually quite a few more new moves that only take place in particular circumstance, which I think is sort of the novel aspect of the second edition, is you have what you need up front. And when you're in a very particular instance, like if you're talking to this one witch there are moves that are associated with just this witch so you don't need to know them up front and you don't need to have them on your character sheet because you can easily play this game for 10 sessions and never meet this witch but if the gm chooses to put you in that or you you know about that and you want to pursue it there are like special accommodations for that in the rule book so i like this encouragement of again like letting the players do what they want and making sure I have support for the things that are, that they want to pursue. And lastly, this is sort of a, well, there's a few, there's a lot of cosmetic changes. I have an illustrator. My friend Kim Nguyen is doing illustration for the book. So it's all original art instead of the public domain stuff that was in the original. It's going to be a hardcover book, which is obviously a step up from the staple bound existence it had prior to this it's just going to be like a a better production because that's something i excel at in my games work is is higher quality production and and product management that sort of thing so i'm excited for for all those like upgrades that are sort of cosmetic but also kind of necessary for just stepping up from my first game to where i am in my design process now those are all really cool goodies that i think uh, when you were talking about how you get spikes for babes one in sort of the autumn section of the year i mean that was some of the first things i thought of when i read the book i was like oh this would be super cute when september rolls around again and me and my partner have our over the garden wall marathon night we can like play the next day or something like that so i think it's really cool from 
because part of this, the existence of this show is also to get the insights of the business of game design from different game designers, if that knowledge is applicable to them at the time. And noticing those sorts of trends and then going, especially in this specific instance, when you're, this is your first game that you've published that you sort of want to revisit because you now have a stronger idea of how to attain the tonal direction of the game that you're like, okay, this, this is important. Some, somehow this game has become important in its own specific ethos and I should rec I choose to recognize that and I want to do something about that. So I think that's very cool and enlightening and something that I think if, if people are choosing to make this a business for themselves or a career, or whatever the word you choose to use passion to know that there's, it's not just always about art and mechanics and, and game design. It's also about, recognizing feedback and peaks of engagement for the games that you're purchasing and what those are potentially vibing deconstructing those things i guess is what i'm trying to trying to point at so that's very good insight there and i know you said this is, is a completely different game and part of the part of the reason for its creation is because you feel that at this time you're a, a better designer we had aaron Lim on here from Malaysia a couple of weeks ago and he mentioned how he never finished uh, never feels a game is truly finished for him like any of his games and I think he has like 20 something games on his itch page alone that always are in a constant flux of of revis revisiting I think another thing to touch on or that I would like to continue to harp on in, in different episodes when that comes up is that you're always able to go back to something and do something, uh, go back to a design and adjust it or rehash it or whatever you want. If you think that you've grown as a designer or even as a person, you're always welcome to revisit those things. And I think this is a really great example of, you know, sort of finding the right time and right headspace to, to do so. So I'm glad that, that, that this is being talked about. Is there Anything that you want to specific, like that you're really proud of in the current stage of design for this game that you want to tease out to people? Since I know this is going to come out relatively close to the announcement of the of the Kickstarter, is there anything you want to kind of like, you know, if you are excited about Babes 1, you will love Babes 2 because of this. I think already just, you know, if you if you like Babes 1 or if you even just like the pitch, like this is mm -hmm. going to be... A thing you want like you already know that you like it <laughs> i think the mechanics really lend themselves well better now to having a more thoughtful experience so the first one is just sort of like you're in these strange spaces what do you do second edition is really framed as you're in these strange spaces and the people there want you to help them how do you help them and it's really about just that sort of kid mentality of why wouldn't you help someone if you have the capacity you should and that's great and then there's also these systems in place for just like helping one another on your collective journey to to help other people and like there's not necessarily there's not really a mechanic for you to heal yourself when you are hurt but there is one for you to heal your friends when they're hurt. And that is deliberate. Like you want those moments of 
of interaction between player characters. And also that's like a, a big emotional pillar that I think was again, not present in the first one. There's also a system in place for your hopes and fears and like how sort of in the, in an extremely different take, but a similar theme to Necronautilus of how you actualize yourself by your actions. So when you realize things that are important about your personality or just who you are, is that your identity by means of helping someone. Those are all really interesting new facets of play that might've been implied in the first, just by the setting and by using over the garden wall as a touchstone. Now that they're, now they're built into how the game is played. So I think it's just through and through a better way to accomplish these themes of friendship and identity and helping and just like childlike purity and fun and also like facing your fears and there's a lot of things that are are cooked into the second edition that were only glanced at in the first edition so this is just like a better way to accomplish those things that is really really cool that again it's just it's doubling down on that the the tone is now more baked into how you how you play the game instead of leaving the heavy lifting to the players. Was there anything, and I guess this is sort of, we sort of already jumped the ship on Necronauts potentially, but in either game, Babes 2 or Necronautilus, was there anything that you were struggling with or wrestling with that took a long time to... I guess, were there any any troubles with certain mechanics or design pieces in both your past game and also your current work that you found that just took a long time to come out of you or that you had to that you really wrestled with in its creation? I think to touch on uh, I mentioned this in Necronautilus when we were talking about life, but this is a little bit even more present in my design of how fear works in Babes in the Wood. I'm very aware of what it feels like to be a role player and have something happen that you that that feels like you're being punished and this is not necessarily this isn't like a safety tool thing this is a mechanical thing of just like i failed this move and now i'm hurt and that kind of sucks or or you know it, it's there to encourage you to not do the things that were going to hurt you so that sort of incapacitation in blades being very aware of just the feeling of not necessarily failure of like, how can you dissuade someone from doing certain things to better achieve your thematic goals without making it feel like what they were doing is wrong. And that was a big hurdle that I had to climb for babes fear mechanic because fear is there all the time. And you are confronted by your fear and it makes things harder to do. And then there's this, you know, shadowy existence that is present in the wood that, that, that pokes at that fear and makes it worse. Hmm. So how, how to mechanize that without it being just a hindrance or giving you disadvantage when you're afraid or things like that. And I think to some extent I have a comfortable spot now where fear prevents you from doing particular things but you're able to mitigate that fear by doing things that embolden you or make you mm-hmm. more hopeful or actually like 
again, like actualize your sense of identity. And so there's a tug of war here in the same way of the life system in Necronautilus. But I think Babes does a better job of managing that tug of war to say like, because in Babes, to be hopeful and to be your real self is is a great thing and to be afraid and to be hindered by that fear is is not a great thing so it's very obvious the direction in which you should act whereas necronautilus is a lot more subjective in which one you want to pursue so designing the fear and the hope mechanic and how they interact and how you can manage them how you can gain and lose points on that spectrum was difficult i'm in a comfortable spot with it right now and i think by the time this is out, by the time the Kickstarter is up, I'll have I'll have finished that goal. I'll have actualized what I want to do with it and how it works. But yeah, I think that's just an important thing to keep in mind is you need to have repercussions for behavior. Similarly, you have zero HP because if you just run into a situation foolhardily and you're attacked a bunch, the, the HP loss is there to tell you don't do that. But you you have to be aware of just what it feels like when you want to do those things and you're and you're punished for them that it, that it's not good. So it's just a tricky balance of of encouraging particular behaviors and rewarding particular things without necessarily making the inverse seem like it's the wrong way to do something because there is not necessarily a right and wrong way to play a lot of these games. Yeah, yeah, I think it's because. I'm currently struggling with this and I run a game of heart, the city beneath currently. And one of my players is particularly frustrated by, I don't know if uh, you've played the game or if listeners play the game, but there's a mechanic in the resistance system that states that when a creature has a certain danger rating, standard risky or, or dangerous that you remove the, highest number of results equal to that rating and it is the game states it's pretty lethal but one of my players is finding that it's very like they love leaning into the horror and action tropes of of heart but they're becoming increasingly frustrated by how at sort of your beginning character stages that the system is very punishing when you try to take on something that's a little above, even a little bit above your pay grade as denoted by the mechanics of the game. So it's interesting to point out that when you create a mechanic that has to put sort of a stop to dinner is such a harsh word, but it's the only one that's coming to me uh, processes that go against the intention of play in the game. You want to make sure that those things aren't so harsh that you're not trepidatious at literally every, it's like the, it's like the comical joke of having the rogue scan for traps all over the floor. And you spend 45 minutes of your session, just letting the rogue kind of stealth and lock pick and search for things before anyone else makes any other moves because you're so terrified of hitting zero HP or making a bad roll against something you didn't think about going forward. So you want to kind of game that. So I, I find it interesting that you, that you point that out and that it's, uh, especially more of a impactful decision when you think about a, a narrative style of game.
this is the sort of TLDR quick tip segment that people can zap to if they just want to absorb five minutes of my podcast rather than the whole 90 minutes. But usually I roll for this, but I think it would be a disservice if I didn't ask sort of these questions that I that I sort of consider, especially you talk about product management and stuff. Are there any tips that you can give for new designers or maybe veteran designers who haven't really explored these avenues? Could you give some tips towards or a tip towards Kickstarter and product management and, and things of those nature? I think that'd be very valuable for people because I don't think I've had anyone on the show talk about those sorts of things before. Yeah. Do you have any more specific angles that you might, might want me to take? Sure. Uh, how about for just setting up your your first Kickstarter? What are some tips that sh- or some things that should be under consideration when you're setting up a Kickstarter for the first time when you're trying to kickstart a game? First thing is know your budget. You can't change it. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest pitfall. I think I see new Kickstarter users falling into, and and I even have uh, on other projects too. If the second that you like turn in your Kickstarter thing, your page for approval on their end, you're no longer able to change your goal. So if you don't know what your budget is, you you could very well end up in trouble with, you know, your ballpark number. So add add eight pages to how long you think it's going to be. Add, you know, a dollar to the shipping cost that you think you're going to pay because you're paying for your mailers, you're paying for your tape, your drive to the post office, the things you don't think about. Generally, I just whenever I find a budget or whenever I make a budget, I just add 10 to 15 percent on top of it because you you don't know or like, you know, you can you can make plans. But something always changes. Don't change the thing that you're making after you go live. That's another that's a that's a huge problem people do. I'm trying not to do too many don'ts and, and make it a negative thing, but. Like changing changing aspects of your project after you have already done your budget changes the budget. I think that's what mm-hmm. I'll just come back to is because your Kickstarter goal is is static and not changeable. And this is kind of what stretch goals accommodate, but stretch goals often make this worse. Saying if I have mm-hmm. if I get X money, I can pay for this person to contribute, and you can, but you maybe didn't account for the six extra pages it's going to add to your book and any illustrations that are going to go in that six extra pages and how those six pages translate to shipping weight and maybe that will tip you into a different shipping zone so just be be, be very wary with your budget do the whole thing before you get approval and before you like turn your kickstarter in for for public and then obviously all that is before you go live once you go live just live with it <laughs> resist the urge because kickstarter usually is three three to four weeks span and there's going to be the boring time in the middle and that's when everybody makes these mistakes of maybe i'll add this maybe i'll do this because you you get complacent you get a little bit bored because kickstarter is really about the first week and the last week in terms of attention and and traffic and and pledges so you get really addicted to wanting that feeling and you do what you can to encourage it in the doldrums and doing that will fuck up your budget. It's just uh it's really a dangerous spot to be in. So mm-hmm. I guess that's part two. I mean, obviously this all comes back to budgeting and, and that's a, a major problem that especially first timer, but all Kickstarter people have is just 
uh, being aware of how much your thing costs to make and what how much money you actually need to make it. It's always more than you think. But don't feel discouraged when your project slows because it's just natural that you can't maintain that momentum for three to four weeks and you shouldn't be expected to. Almost every Kickstarter has the same graph of a spike in the first four or five days and then a plateau and then a spike in the last four or five days. And so people see that plateau, they think they're failing and that's not what it is. You've already likely succeeded or met your goal and now you're coasting. You should think of it as just like, this is the cool time, the easy time where you know your project is going to be what it should be, what you wanted it to be at the onset. Don't mm-hmm. panic in that time. Just be be calm. That's my biggest my biggest advice because I think that's where a lot of problems lie and that's that that's where you end up trying to scramble and doing things that shoot yourself in the foot because this perception that what you're doing is not working when the reality is that what you're doing has worked and that's now you're just like sort of waiting. It's a marathon, not a sprint. They people say that, and that's true. So thinking about just the middle time is not, it's not fun, but you just got to ride it out. I think that's a very, very, very powerful tip for sure. And very eye opening for me. I mean, I've been always, I've always been like sort of a financials guy and thinking about the numbers and crunching and thinking about future projections and and things like that. But not everyone is always so forward thinking about financials, especially when, you know, you think about something as potentially amorphous as, as Kickstarter for, for some, especially for me, like I don't understand it at, at all. So this was very good for me to hear. And I think it'll be very powerful for anyone that gets to hear this episode when it airs. One more uh, important uh, thing too uh, yeah. is print more than you have backers, partly because you're going to have some that get messed up in the mail or lost or whatever. And that's just the nature of the beast, but mm-hmm. you're not making in theory, you're not making a Kickstarter exclusive game. So you, you print 25% more on your print run. You're going to get a lower cost per unit because almost every printer charges less the more the higher quantity you get. And then you'll have inventory. So when your game reaches those backers and they post about it and someone goes, oh, I want that, where do I get it? You have, you have an answer. You have copies. You either... You can do inventory with like floating chair or exalted funeral or something, or you can have your own store, which is what I do. And I, and I still do distro, but make sure that your game is available after the game is made available. <laughs> Cause that's also a thing I, I I've seen people just make just enough to cover their backers. And then they're, they can't afford to do a full reprint and they don't have mm. enough to continue distribution in the meantime so it's a really easy way to kind of kill the momentum that you created by by not having enough product not having enough copies of the thing that people want that very 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 good stuff adam i think that's beneficial to everyone that that would be listening to this well with that I think we've reached this being the longest episode I've <laughs> ever had and and very and in a very good way. I thank you for being on here. Where can people talk to you, reach out to you if they want to uh, touch base with you, find your stuff? Obviously, all these links will be in the show notes, but let them know, Adam. Sure. Well, my main thing is my website is worldchamp.io. 
my web store is there. There's links to everything. So my Patreon, which is World Champ Game Co., where I release games every month. There's also a link to my itch, which is worldchampgameco.itch.io, where the digital files for everything live. I'm on Twitter at WC Game Co. And I'm on Instagram at World Champ Game Co. If you want to hear me talk more about design stuff, we have the Brain Trust podcast that comes out every week. Myself and Will Yopes talk about the things that we're making, and we sometimes just make things in in real time. And there's also in the show notes for that podcast a link to join the Brain Trust Discord server, so you can come interact with everybody and and brainstorm and collaborate and get advice and that sort of stuff. Amazing. All all those will be available for you to click on listener at any time. Again, Adam, I want to thank you so much. You've been uh, a truly powerful guest here today. <laughs> and I look forward to everything that, that you come to do in, in 2021. For everyone at home, this has been Jeremy Gage with Draw Your Dice. Have a wonderful day. Say bye to the people, Adam. Bye. Thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap. What a doozy of an episode. Adam, I truly admire your skill and discipline. You are most definitely designer goals. As of the release of this episode, Babes in the Woods 2nd Edition will be within its second week over on Kickstarter of its three-week run ending on February 6th. So make sure to go and check that out and tell them Jeremy sent you. All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Adam and links to the Kickstarter, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you like the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way over on Kofi. Or, if you are unable to donate, please consider sharing this with the person you thought of while listening to this episode and leave a review. Both of those methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me, at JeremyGage5, over on Twitter with the hashtag IDIDIT. That's I-D-Y-D-I-T. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.